Hi everyone, welcome again to uh, a Light Into My Path podcast. Today we're going to continue on the study of the events and people that were uh, critical to uh, the authorized text, also known as the King James Bible. Once again, my name is Howard Sides. I'm an adult Sunday school teacher, and so we're going through this. We're picking up about the end of the 4th century, some events that took place in the end of the 4th century. <clears throat> Excuse me, so we'll get started here in the year 383 AD is the Gothic version, the Codex Argentius is what it's also known as, Codex Argentius, known by the name Gothic version. It was authored by Ophilus or Wolfila, the Gothic name of Ophilus. Now, Gothic, by definition, is a, Germ a Germanic people whose region spanned from southern Sweden across to western Asia and south to the Mediterranean Sea and back across to the Atlantic Ocean. So it's not simply just people from the area where we know as Germany, but a much larger uh, expanse there. Uh, it is the Gothic people. <coughs> okay, excuse me. Now, uh, this guy by the name of Ophelas, which is U-L-F-I-L-A-S, Ophelus. He was a bishop, a missionary, and a Bible translator. He was ordained a bishop by Eusebius of Nicomedia. Nicomedia is the city where Libanius was exiled to in our previous podcast. In 348 AD, he left his home with followers and fled to the area of northern Romania. He translated the Bible from Greek into the Gothic language. At this point, <clears throat> Excuse me, there was no written form of the Gothic language. Uh, everybody would just speak, but there was no written form of it. So to communicate, all, it was all completely verbal. So basically, he had to create an alphabet for the Gothic language to create a Gothic version of the Bible. So this Bible is referred to as the Silver Book. The Silver Book. And it was probably written for the Ostrogothic king, Theodoric the Great. It was written with gold and silver ink. The pages were made of high-quality thin vellum, stained purple with an intricate binding. When the king died, the book was lost until discovery in the Abbey of Verden. That's with a W, but the Germans pronounce W with a V. Verden, Germany, in the 16th century. The book only contains 188 of the original 300 and 36 pages. It currently resides in the Carolina Red Aviva building in the Uppsala, Uppsala University Library in Uppsala, Sweden. Now, one thing to note about this writing uh, and translating of this Bible into this language and having to create a written language, it just shows you the desire uh, that someone had not to just create this, but to read it um, and with the intricate parts of how it was written with this gold and silver ink, and then the paper was made of high-quality stuff. This stuff was expensive, and this was not something that you could just run down to your local Walmart and buy. That, that This would come at a high cost. And so you can imagine uh, just how valuable this thing was, and, and when with the respect and, and the materials that were used um, of the respect of God's Word that was had at this time. Uh, now, in 385 to 405 AD is where we're going to talk about this Latin Vulgate. 
The Latin Vulgate, it was authored by a fellow by the name of Jerome. It was commissioned by Pope Damascus I in 382 AD to make a revision of the Old Latin translations. <clears throat> it was entitled the Vulgate, simply the Vulgate, on purpose to confuse it with the original Vulgate. It was later called the Latin Vulgate to distinguish the two. One was right, one was wrong. And the Latin was the wrong. Uh, it has been altered many times, but most of the work is still accredited to Jerome. Now, the objective, as it was stated for this Latin Vulgate, was to assist, in parentheses, Christians, out of parentheses, in their controversies with the Jews. Now, by the 7th century, it was fully accepted by the Roman Catholic Church as the standard. And in the 16th century, it was accepted by the Council of Trent. Now, that's the second time we've mentioned that, so we'll talk about that a little bit. The Council of Trent. This was a body of Roman Catholic clergy and leaders who met to issue condemnations on what is defined as Protestant heresies and defined church teachings in the areas of scripture and tradition, original sin, justification, sacraments, the Eucharist and Holy Mass, and the veneration of saints. Now, I know a lot of you probably uh, don't know some of the definitions of these words, so I'll go down through what some of them are. Uh, the Eucharist is what is what we would know as the Lord's Supper. Uh, this veneration of saints is a, spe a special act of honoring, uh, such as bowing, uh, kissing the ring, or making the sign of the cross before a statue or icon of a saint. That's veneration. Uh, now, the Council of Trent was held from December the 13th, 1545, to December the 4th, 1563. Uh, it included 25 sessions in all over four periods of time. The first period was 1545 to 1547, period of two years, and it was eight sessions held in this city of Trent. The second period was in one year, 1547, and it contained three sessions held in Bologna. The third period was 1551 to 1552. Uh, it contained five sessions, all held in Trent, again. And then the fourth period, 1559 to 1563. And this consisted of nine sessions, all held in Trent. So three of them were held in Trent, one in Bologna. I don't know for what reason that one year was held in Bologna, but it's called the Council of Trent because that's where it started, that's where it ended, that's where the majority of the uh, meetings were held. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the council consisted of over 255 members. Now, these included four papal legates, which are personal representatives of the Pope to foreign nations, two cardinals, three patriarchs, which are the highest ranking of a bishop, 25 archbishops, which is ranked between patriarch and bishop, and then 168 bishops. Now, two-thirds of this entire group were Italians, lending to a powerful position of authority and dictating terms. Uh, Trent and Bologna are in Italy, so obviously they held a vast majority of the opinion when it came to deciding factors. Okay, uh, let's, the 5th century was, of course, 400 to 499 A.D. A significant event that happened in this time was pagan Anglo-Saxons uh, take control over the Brightons for uh, the area we know as England today. And they control all religious activities. 
uh, in the 6th century. That's 500 to 599 A.D. We'll move on to there. 597 A.D., all the way towards the end of the year. Uh, Pope, or the century, sorry. Pope Gregory sends a monk named Augustine of Canterbury to convert King Ethelbert of Kent to Catholicism. Of course, they called it Christianity even then, but it was Catholicism. Now, the Pope had inside information on the events that had taken place here. He knows that the king had married a woman by the name of Bertha, who was a Catholic princess from Roman Gaul, which is the southeastern part of France in northern Italy region. That's where Gaul was. Augustine introduces Roman Catholicism and the corrupt Latin Vulgate to this region. Now, God, in his divine wisdom, used the Roman Catholics to take over Angloland. That's what it was called at the time because of the Anglo Saxons, and it was the land they lived in, Anglo land. That's how we come to the term today or the name England. It was from Anglo land. Now, <clears throat> when I say God used in his divine wisdom the Roman Catholic Church to take over, you're thinking, well, if, if, the, La if the Roman Catholic Church is so against the true authorship of the Bible and, and the true authorized text and all of this, and they're doing all these other things that are against the Bible, you know, why would God, you, there's there's periods all through the Bible where God used um, unbelievers to accomplish his will. Again, God in his wisdom, we can't know his wisdom. Uh, he is the creator of wisdom. We don't, we, we just can't understand why he would do some things the way he does, but he has a purpose. He has an intent. One is for the glorification of himself, and two is for the further betterment of his people. And even in, uh, I think it's Isaiah, it mentions uh um, King Cyrus by name hundreds of years before King Cyrus was even born. And so that's just, you know, proof that he could use whoever he needed to uh, to accomplish his will. <clears throat> but what we're getting at is, of course, these people couldn't speak Latin, okay? The Bible that they were using there, so-called if you prefer, is the Latin Vulgate, which was useless to them up to the 1960s. Okay, that's 1960 A.D. Up to the 1960s, papal law decreed that the Bible could only be read in Latin and that Mass could only be said in Latin. So basically what you're looking at is a period of over 1,360 years where people were forced to go to a church where they couldn't even understand what was being said. Now, if you want to put that in today's terms and think about how long we're talking about, uh, 1,360 years back from this year, this year being 2020, you'd have to go all the way back to the year 660 AD of sitting in a church where people were speaking the foreign language and you had no clue what was being said, what was being told to you, or what the authority, the Bible, was saying to you. All you could do was take that man's, the priest's, word for what the Bible was being said. So it was being dictated to them. Okay, they couldn't read it for themselves. The 7th century, 600 to 699 A.D. <clears throat> in the year 670, uh, there is an old English translation, and that old would be O-L-D-E. You, know, you see some of these uh, storefronts and things, that the old English shop or whatever, that's old is O-L-D-E. And there is a fellow by the name of Cademan. Cademan, that's C-A-E-D. M-O-N, Cademan. He was an uneducated cow herder 
for a monastery at Whitby Abbey in Yorkshire, England. Now, in an unusual account, on one particular night, the monks were feasting, drinking, and singing, and Cademan left early to go sleep with the animals because he didn't know any of the songs. He knew no songs. While asleep, he had a dream where an angel asked him to sing the beginning of created things. And if you look at that story, it kind of reminds you of the story of Samuel's beginnings with the high priest Eli. If you remember, uh, Hannah uh, begged God for a son, and she promised God that if he gave her a son, that she would give him basically to, to his work, give him back to God. And so God answered her prayer, and so she had the baby Samuel, and so she took Samuel to this high priest Eli to raise. And in the beginning of the uh, books of Samuel, it talks about where Samuel's laying there asleep one night, and someone calls his name, and he gets up and goes to Eli and says, in today's terms, uh, Master, what do you need? And Eli's like, what are you talking about? I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. So he goes back to bed, and he gets called again. He called his name again, and he comes back in there. He said, are you sure? what?" And he's like, no, it wasn't me. It took a couple of times before Eli caught on to what was happening, and he told Samuel, he said, hey, the next time they call your name, uh, just say, Lord, what would you have me do? And so Samuel goes back to bed, and, and of course, he calls him a third time, or he calls him the next time, and wakes him up, and he says, Lord, you know, what would you have me do? And and so that's kind of the uh, parallel of the two stories there. Uh, so this Cademan, uh, he has this dream, and he goes back and he tells his boss uh, <clears throat> about it, who tells the abbess, who is the head nun. Now, he, re he recounts the dream to her and repeats the songs he created that night. As a test, she gives him another passage of text to put to song, which he does. She then instructs her scholars to teach him sacred history and doctrine, which he would then turn into verse that night. Now, he learned verbally, because again, this was an uneducated cowherder, okay? He learned verbally the stories in the books of Genesis and Exodus, the stories about Christ, and the stories of the apostles. Cademan then translated these stories from Scripture into songs in the English language. Now, again, remember I just told you that uh, God used the Roman Catholic Church to take over England and set all this infrastructure up, although, it, listen, let's just face it, it was a false religion, and he set it up to have the precedence to begin to translate into English God's Word, and this, this is how he's doing it. So then Cademan, after he translates all these stories, he traveled around the countryside singing these stories to people. Now listen, these people had been for 1,360 years uh, subjected to uh, the Bible being told to them in a foreign language, a Latin language. They had no clue what any of the Bible said. And here's this guy coming around the countryside singing these songs, telling the story of God, telling the story of creation, telling the story of Jesus Christ, telling the story of the Exodus, and about all these apostles. And can you imagine the response that this guy would have got? It didn't matter what he sounded like. It didn't matter how eloquent his voice was. It was the words. And I'm sure he was quite captivating as he sung these songs. Now, you think about this. Here is a cowboy, per, per se, uh, was the first to translate the Bible into the English language. A roaming cowboy. <laughs> Imagine that. Now later, uh, a fellow by the name of Bede, and we'll talk about him in a minute, B-E-D-E, -E, Bede. Later, Bede wrote in his work, The Ecclesiastical History of the English People of Cademan. He wrote about this fellow. And Bede said, quote, 
There was in the monastery of this abbess a certain brother, particularly remarkable for the grace of God, who was wont to make religious verses so that whatever was interpreted to him out of scripture, he soon after put the same into poetical expressions of much sweetness and humility in English, which was his native language. By his verse, the minds of many were often excited to despise the world and to aspire to heaven. End quote. So, ten years later, in 680 AD, was the creation of the Cademan's Hymn. And this was, of course, considered his greatest work, which I, I think it goes further than just being his greatest work. I think this was one of the greatest works to the English language in that now we have the Bible uh, translated through song, uh, basically a hymn, if you were, uh, in the English language. And it was first recorded and paraphrased the translation of a Bible into Old English from Genesis to Revelation. <clears throat> now, the 8th century, 700 to 799 A.D. In the year 700, uh, there is a fellow by the name of uh, the Psalter of Aldhelm. The Psalter, P-S-A-L-T-E-R, of Aldhelm, A-L-D-H-E-L-M. He is the Bishop of Salisbury of Canterbury. He, uh, he translated Psalms into Old English. And this was the first literal translation of some part of the Bible into written English. Now, Cademan started the whole process by translating what he heard into song. But this guy, the Psalter of Aldhelm, actually translated a part of the Bible into written English form. Uh 639 to 729 A.D. was the lifespan of a guy by the name of Egbert, E-G-B-E-R-T. Now, his life. As a young man, he set out on a pilgrimage with a few friends, traveling all the way to Ireland. A, a road trip, basically, okay? That's what we know as today. So him and a few of his friends set on a road trip to Ireland. Uh, they settled down at a monastery in what is known as Connaught, C-O-N-N-A-U-G-H-T. His friends all contracted the plague and died. He also contracted it. On his deathbed, he repents of his sins and asks God to allow him to live long enough to atone for the sinful deeds of his youth. Now, this is a similar story to that of King Hezekiah. If you remember, Hezekiah took over from an evil king and he was trying to do the right things. And as he lay there in the bed one night, God come to him and said, get your affairs in order because you're about to die. And so King Hezekiah uh, basically prays and says, God, just give me just a little more time to do right. Just give me a little more time to do uh, the things that I'm trying to get done. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, tells him, okay, I'll give you a couple more years. So he kind of extends his time there to do what he had to do. And so uh, also this fellow by the name of Egbert uh, miraculously recovers. And he also keeps his promise to God until he died at the age of 90. Lived till he was 90. So that's a little bit about his life. Now, what about his work? He translated Matthew, Mark, and Luke into Old English. A copy of his work is in the British Museum today. In 697, he attended the Synod of Burr, B-I-R-R, -R, which is a meeting of Irish nobles, military, and religious leaders. And they created a set of laws adopted called the Cain Adam Nain. Cain, C-A-I-N, 
Adam name, A-D-O-M-N-A-I-N. Uh, in English terms, that's law of innocence. And it's basically a very early form of human rights. So he asked God to extend his life a little bit, and he, God did. And he took part in translating uh, part of the Gospels into English and then <laughs> uh, very literally set about establishing a very early form of human rights. So I, I think he probably did what God thought he should do. He did right. Okay, 735 A.D. Uh, we mentioned this fellow before, Bede, B-E-D-E, -E, okay? Known as the Venerable Bede. <laughs> That's a term that commands great respect for impressive dignity or reverence. He was a brilliant scholar in the English language. He was called the father of English history. His famous work is called the Ecclesiastical History of the English People. We mentioned that earlier where he talks about uh, the Cademan's biography and his work. And he translated the book of John. So now, if you look at what Egbert did, he translated Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And now here, Bede translates the book of John. So we now have in the English, the old English language, the, the translation of the Gospels. What a great start. Now, tradition says that he finished the last verses on his deathbed. So his last words were the translation of the last verses in the book of John. John chapter 21, verses 24 through 25. What a great testimony it was. And this is what they say. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things, and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. All right, continuing on to the ninth century. 800 to 899 A.D. In 860 A.D., a fellow by the name of Otfrid uh, Wiesenberg, O-T-F-R-I-D, he wrote what is called the Evangelican Book. It contains 7,104 couplets. A couplet is two lines of poetry that rhyme and have the same meter. Uh, meter would be uh, a rhythm. In other words, however many uh, let's say vows, it'd be contained in the same passage, so it kind of rhymes together, meets the same size. Uh, it is the first substantial literary work and the first use of rhyme in German literature. It is a poetical narrative of Jesus. It also contained portions about Genesis, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. The entire work is preserved in four different manuscripts. Moving on to 870 to 901 AD is the reign of King Alfred the Great in England. He was the king of what is known as Wessex, which is in southwest England, in Anglo-Saxon territory. Remember, Anglo-Saxon. Remember, we talked about how God had used the Roman Catholic Church to invade Angloland, England, uh, to establish a precedence, a basis for introducing the English people to his word. And at the time, there was like 1,300 years that the Bible, by rule of the Roman Catholic Church, was to be read in, only in Latin, and the Mass was to be held in Latin. So these people had no idea what the Bible said, could not understand what was being said. But then he introduced this fellow, Cademan, 
who wrote all these songs, and then Bede started translating the Bible, and then a few others translated the Bible. So now we have a partial working element of the Bible in this old English language. And then we come to this reign of the King of Wessex, King Alfred the Great. He is the youngest of four sons of King Aethelwulf of Wessex. When he was five, he was sent to Rome, where he was confirmed by Pope Leo IV and anointed as the king. Now, just as in Hebrew tradition, this was very strange because this was the fourth, this was the youngest of four sons, and he is automatically assumed at the age of five to be the next king. How strange that was. Sounds much uh, like the anointing of David as king. If you remember, uh, Saul was the king. Uh, he disobeyed God, and God said, okay, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to appoint a man of my own picking to be the leader of Israel. And so he sends Samuel to uh, Jesse's house and said, there, I'm going to pick one of his sons to be the king. And so obviously Samuel would have assumed it would have followed Hebrew tradition. And so he goes to the oldest son and God tells him, he says, no, not that one. So then he goes to the next oldest and God says, no, not that one. And then he goes to the next one in line. And God says, no, not that one. And then the next one, then the next one. <laughs> and I'm sure Samuel at the time is thinking, am I in the right house? Do I have the right address? Just like, he's like, well, I must've got lost. <clears throat> Excuse me. And finally, he goes through all the sons. And God says, no, not that one. And so Samuel, in a moment of intellect, he look, looks at Jesse and says, have you got any more sons? <laughs> and Jesse says, oh, well, yeah, there's the youngest one. He, he's the shepherd. He's out tending to the sheep. And he says, call him. We've got, we got to figure out this thing out. So then they call David in. And of course, God says, that's the one. So that's kind of the picture we see here is it's not the second born and third born, but this is the youngest son. Strange. Now, it's argued in history that this guy, King Alfred the Great, was one of the most intelligent men to have ever lived. Now, that's saying something when you take, for example, in the Bible, there was King Solomon. But um, let's look at some of the things he did that just kind of lends a little bit to uh, the intelligence of this man. He initiated the concept of a militia that could reinforce or replenish active military forces. After several attacks from Vikings, he called up the feared, F-Y-R-D, feared, or the militia, to a standing army or continual army. So he basically used an active militia is what he did. He utilized them to reinforce garrisons and to construct larger and newer ships of war. Now, these garrisons were interconnected along rivers and newly created wide roads for faster transfer of troops and materials. This is like the initial use of the Audubon. If you're not familiar with the Audubon, that is the highway system uh, in the nation of Germany. And the Audubon was created in World War II by Hitler to have a fast and most direct route of moving transports of military equipment or soldiers uh, as expeditiously as possible. And, and of course, post-World War II, the Audubon is now where you can go out there and wind open your vehicle about as far as you want to. There's no speed limit, but I can promise you and I can attest you from personal experience, they do have speed limits, okay, in some places. But yeah, in, in some areas, you can just go as hard as you want. But so that kind of sounds like the same thing, created these can canals and these uh, rivers and wide roads to allow easy passage of, of materials and, and troops. Now, the garrisons were strategically placed within one day's walking distance of every town to offer them protection within reach. 
He created a mobile field force, a horse-mounted force, later known as the Cavalry. He also uh, designed an entirely new ship that was faster and rode even higher in the water than the Viking ships. He created a system of breaking up the country into shires, or basically counties, as we would know, or, pro or provinces, things of that nature, so that each county could be responsible for their own garrisons. He completely overhauled the legal system by integrating the law God gave to Moses within the current English legal system. He paid particular attention to the judicial system by reviewing almost every single case personally. His son, Edward the Elder, writes that he even heard one appeal while washing his hands before a meal. Now, you don't think much of that, but here we are in the 900s, the late 800s, early 900s. This man's washing his hands before a meal. Uh, that's incredible enough because hand washing as an act of disinfection was not introduced until 1847 by Dr. Ignatius, Ignis uh, Semmelweis. Igna just look it up on Google and you can see that. Uh, look up hand washing. <clears throat> and this doctor, excuse me, in 1847 started this whole thing. And of course that was because of uh, Louis Pasteur and some of the other doctors of that era that discovered bacteria and where all these diseases were coming from. Up until then, people just didn't wash their hands. But apparently this guy had a little bit of inside information or was smart enough to know to wash his hands. Okay, uh, so he goes on. Uh, he insisted that his judges be literate so that they could apply themselves to the pursuit of wisdom. Failure to comply would result in loss of office. So he held these guys accountable for what they did. Uh, he also brought in clerical scholars to establish schools for all the children in the kingdom to learn both Latin and English. So thereby, the portions of the Bible that they didn't have in Old English, by learning Latin, they could understand for themselves. One of his greatest accomplishments was his defense of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of southern England against the Vikings. He is the only English monarch to have the title, The Great. So that tells you what they think of him. Uh, he also loved books. And of all the books that he loved, his favorite was the Bible. He personally, tra listen, personally translated, personally translated himself, the Ten Commandments, the Psalms, and the Four Gospels. This was a busy king. And he translated these sections because he, quote, desired that all freeborn youth of his king of my kingdom should be able to read the scriptures unquote so this guy wanted them to be able to read the bible and know what it said personally for themselves what a great king this was all right uh 10th century moving right on along <clears throat> we're going to catch up with yesterday pretty quick <laughs> uh 10th century 900 to 999 a.d halfway through the year 950 a.d Priest Aldred, A-L-D-R-E-D. He translated the Lindisfarne Gospels from Latin into Old English. Again, the Old O-L-D-E English. The Lindisfarne Gospels. Uh, the Lindisfarne Gospels are a decorative Latin manuscript of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, named for the small island located off the northeastern coast of England. The manuscript was written by a monk named Edfrith in about 698 A.D. You remember we mentioned Edfrith. Sorry. Um, Aldred's translation was from the original Latin into Old English. 
it was wrote out in double space. In other words, there was you know, the spacing between the lines as you went down. He inserted the Anglo-Saxon words between the verses. So basically, he translated difficult Latin concepts into a clearer Old English context. He also added a what is called a colophon, C-O-L-O-P-H-O-N. That's the description of the publication. It describes the manuscript written in 698 by Edfrith, Bishop of Lindisfarne. The original binding was supplied by Ethelwald, Edfrith's successor in 921. The outside ornamentation was done by Bilfrith. And the Gospels were created for God and St. Cuthbert. It was also nicknamed the Durham Book because it is believed that the manuscript might have been stolen from the Durham Cathedral. This is the oldest translation of the Gospels into English. And it automatically makes me think, why would this book of such great value be stolen? Well, there may be an event later on in King James' lifetime that can explain that. But I think when you take a, a religious organization at this time, the Roman Catholic Church had an edict saying that, you know, the the Bible would only be read in Latin, that the Mass could only be held in Latin. Why would you not want the people to understand? Why would you not want the people to know? Why would you keep the truth from the people? And by being in Latin, that was the only reason, the only purpose of doing that, that was to hide it. So the, the whole fact that this manuscript had been stolen, kind of, I'm not saying they did it, but it sure lends a whole lot of blame that way, doesn't it? <laughs> Okay, I'm going to stop there in this episode, and we'll pick up in the 11th century on the next episode. Uh, thank you for listening.